Welcome. This is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is Exploration. Every week on Exploration, we discuss the fascinating world of science and its impact on society. Well, let me make a short announcement, and then we're going to jump right into some of the top headlines in science and politics of the past week. First of all, go to my website if you want to find out more about this program. My website is mkaku.org, M-K-A-K-U.org, and you can see some of the interviews that I've done promoting my latest book, which is now a New York Times and Amazon bestseller. The book is called The God Equation, The Quest for a Theory of Everything, and I've done interviews on the Stephen Colbert Late Night Show, PBS Television, MSNBC, CNN, Fox, and any number of blogs about the greatest quest in the history of science. And that holy grail of science is to find a single equation, perhaps no more than an inch long, that will unify all the forces of the universe and allow us to, quote, read the mind of God. These are the words of Albert Einstein, who spent the last 30 years of his life chasing after an equation, perhaps no more than an inch long, that will help to decode this universe. In the same way that E equals MC squared decoded the history and the origin of the sun and the stars, he thought a similar equation would decode the entire universe. Well, unfortunately, he failed, but today we think we have it. This missing paradigm, this missing theme, principle that governs the entire universe is music, the music of subatomic particles, the music of the quantum theory, so that all the particles that make up the universe are nothing but musical notes like A, B flat, C sharp, just musical notes vibrating in space giving us atoms and molecules, people and stars. And then what is physics? Physics is the harmonies, the harmonies we can write on these vibrating strings. What is chemistry? Chemistry is the melodies you can play when these strings bump into each other and collide. What is the universe? The universe is a symphony of strings. And then what is the mind of God? The mind of God would be cosmic music resonating through hyperspace. Well, if you want to find out more about my work, more about exploration, and more about my latest New York Times bestseller, go to my website, mkaku.org, M-K-A-K-U.org, or go to my Facebook site at Michio Kaku. In fact, we have four and a half million fans on Facebook. But... Let's now jump right into the top stories of the past week. First of all, there's a lot of fallout coming from President Joe Biden's statement that within 90 days, within 90 days, he wants the intelligence agencies of the United States to come up with a definitive answer as to where did the coronavirus come from? Well, some scientists are shaking their heads because, well, we may never know. You see, the only organization that knows what really happened in November of last uh, 2019 is the Chinese Communist Party, and they're not telling anyone. In fact, they claim that they are perfectly innocent 
of any shenanigans that may have taken place to create, possibly, the coronavirus. So in some sense, we may never know. And the whistleblowers, the whistleblowers that alerted the world to that something fishy was happening in China, well, some of them disappeared. They're no longer with us. And some of them passed away because of the coronavirus. But what we do have is a trail of coincidences. Last week, I detailed over 10 coincidences. And again, one coincidence or two coincidences does not prove anything. But when you string together 10 coincidences, then you begin to wonder. For example, where did the virus originate from? Most people originally thought it was the food market in Hunan. Now we realize that that's not true. That horseshoe bats were probably the origin of the coronavirus. One virus found in bats is 97% identical to the virus infecting most of the planet Earth at the present time. But the question is, where did that horseshoe bat come from? Realize that that horseshoe bat comes from Yunnan province, which is hundreds, hundreds of miles away from Hunan. So what's the connection between the horseshoe bat, the food market, and the institute, two virology institutes? Well, the link is the scientists at that laboratory that imported, imported the horseshoe bat from Yunnan into Hunan, did experiments, and then the most damning, the most damning coincidence is they were doing just not ordinary experiments on the virus. They were doing gain-of-function experiments. They were actually toying with the virus to make it more lethal. Think about that. This is potentially one of the greatest killers of modern time. And what did they do there? They made it more lethal. And who was funding it? In part, the United States. So the United States was funding research that led to a gain-of-function in some of these horseshoe bat viruses that were imported from Yunnan province into Hunan. So what's the connection there? Well, these are just coincidences. And then in November of 2019, we know that three scientists came down with flu-like symptoms very similar to the coronavirus in November of 2019. And as I mentioned, several scientists have mysteriously disappeared or passed away because of the virus. And so we're left with a trail of coincidences. And unfortunately, some scientists are shaking their heads and saying that any evidence there was a smoking gun might have already been destroyed by the Chinese Communist Party. But hey, let's face it, nobody knows. We have lots of lots of question marks. A lot of the question marks are pointing toward the Chinese Communist Party, but sad to say, there is no smoking gun yet. And some scientists are saying we may never have a smoking gun because all the evidence has been conveniently burned away. Also, let's say a few things about traveling during this season. A lot of people are taking off after the Memorial Day celebrations. People are saying, it's over. It's over. I got my life back. Well, not so fast. It turns out that only about 50% of the American population has been fully vaccinated, meaning that the other 50% has not been fully vaccinated. And if you read between the lines, 
the CDC guidelines say that you can take off your masks, A, if you're outdoors, B, if you're with other vaccinated individuals. But if you take off your mask indoors and you're with a group of people that are not fully vaccinated, just remember the vaccine is not foolproof. The <clears throat> Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine are about 94 to 95% effective, but the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is only 65 to 70 or so percent effective. In fact, eight Yankee baseball players who were fully vaccinated with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine came down with a positive reading on the coronavirus. So a word to the wise, when you head off to the beach, when you head off to the airport, a word of caution. First of all, a word of caution. If you talk to somebody, just remember that talking is one of the main ways in which the virus spreads. Scientists made a mistake underestimating the lethality of simply having a conversation. Try to keep your conversations down to 15 minutes or less. If you have to talk to somebody, make it short, okay? And if you're outdoors, yes, that's an added layer of safety, but if you're indoors, watch out, and especially watch out if you're talking to people that you know are not vaccinated. If you're indoors, there's a greater chance that aerosols will be floating in the air for hours, hours at a time. In fact, we now realize that that's perhaps the single most uh, common way in which the virus spreads. Indoor transmission for greater than 15 minutes in a crowded environment with unvaccinated people. That is the number one way in which the virus is spread. And if you take an airline, then go take a window seat. If you have a choice, take a window seat. Try to be as far away from other people as possible. Don't engage in just random chit-chat unless you know the other person you're talking to is fully vaccinated. Also, before you sit down, wipe down the hard surfaces in your seat. Bring some wipes along. Wipe down the hard surfaces because the virus can live on these hard surfaces for a few hours to a few days. And remember that the air on most flights are filtered, and so that is a, a layer of safety that you can depend upon, at least if you believe the word of the airlines. And again, if you're in long lines, obey social distancing, keep chit-chat to an absolute minimum, and if possible, do as much of the stuff outdoors rather than indoors. Because just remember, we are far away from attaining herd immunity. Herd immunity is when you can finally rip off your mask and declare with a certain amount of confidence that you are relatively safe. But that requires maybe 70% of the population being vaccinated. We don't know the exact number. But at the present time, we're only talking about about half the population are fully vaccinated. And just remember that new mutant viruses are coming our way. There's yet another one announced just a few days ago from Vietnam. And so the two mutant strains that we have to worry most about are the South African strain and the Vietnamese strain, which has just been isolated. So what does it mean? It means probably we'll have to have an annual booster shot. And again, this is still being studied very carefully. But the indications are that because the virus is mutating, mutating faster than we thought, it means that we may have an extra layer of safety 
by having a booster shot every year, just like we have annual booster shots for the flu virus. And also news from outer space. First of all, we have to congratulate the Chinese for the successes of their space program. In a series of successes, they've been able to land on the moon, in fact, deposit a probe on the far side of the moon, which we've never done before. Then they went on to Mars, and they successfully landed a lander on the surface of Mars. The United States has done it. The Russians did it briefly. But the Chinese are therefore the third nation to be able to land something safely on the surface of Mars. And they're building a space station. They're building it so quickly, in fact, that their booster rockets land on uh, land in the ocean and next to people's property. But nonetheless, they are building a space station, even when our space station may eventually be deorbited. We don't know when, but our $100 billion space station may eventually become a flaming meteor coming down from outer space, landing very carefully somewhere in the oceans, leaving the Chinese to have the only space station in outer space. Well, some people are now grumbling, and they're saying, well, what happens if the Chinese have aggressive intentions? What happens if a war breaks out? What does that mean for the space force? What does it mean for the security of the planet? Well, first of all, let us not run away with the rhetoric. Because, first of all, warfare from outer space is a little bit more difficult than you may realize. First of all, some people envision a base on the moon, a military base on the moon. But just remember, it takes about three days, three days to go from the Earth to the moon. And a war in outer space is going to be fought in a matter of hours. And so military exercises on the moon really don't mean much at the present time. And of course, going to Mars makes it worse. It takes two years for a round-trip mission to Mars, nine months to get there, a few months to wait for the next window of opportunity to return, and then another nine months to come back. And so we're not talking about a warfare for, from Mars. But what we are talking about is satellite warfare. That's the weak link in the whole chain, satellite warfare. Right? Right now, there are about 6,000 satellites orbiting the Earth. Most of them are defunct and non-operational. However, of the operational satellites up there in outer space, over half of them, in turn, are connected to the United States in some way or another. And it wouldn't take much to upset the entire apple cart. Just one atomic bomb, one atomic bomb detonated in outer space, would be enough to blind perhaps half the satellites in space. And so in other words, the Chinese have an expression, never pick up a rock only to drop it on your feet. And that is, if a war does break out in outer space, who will suffer the most? The Western industrialized countries, especially the United States, because so much of their telecommunications, their economy, their weather satellites, their entertainment is done through outer space. And so what does it mean, therefore, if China starts to become more and more like the United States and Russia in terms of a space program? Well, on one hand, it's a good thing. I think the more nations 
take space seriously, I think it's a good thing. It's a bad thing, however, if they begin to practice satellite warfare. Now, years ago, the Chinese successfully blew up one of their own satellites. One satellite was the pigeon. The other satellite was the killer. The killer satellite released a projectile which smashed into the pigeon, which was a defunct weather satellite, causing thousands of pieces of debris to be scattered all over outer space. The amount of garbage created by that ASAT exercise in outer space was so great that many nations protested to the Chinese, don't you ever do that again. Because if you litter outer space with space junk, who benefits and who suffers? Everybody suffers because it means that satellites will collide with garbage in outer space. So what's the solution to this problem, given the fact that the Chinese are in an accelerated path to catch up to the West? They are methodically, step by step, following in the footprints of the United States and the Soviet Union and Western Europe. They are copycats. And so, in other words, they can accelerate the advancement of their program because the wheel has been invented. We already know how to do it. We already know how to go to Mars. We already know how to set up a space station. And the Chinese are benefiting from this. But if they become now leaders, leaders in space innovation, that's a whole nother ball of wax. And so the acceleration of the Chinese program does not mean they're reaching for a military solution. No, it just means that they're following the West and the, the former Soviet Union. So what's the solution to this problem of warfare in outer space? I think the solution is to have a treaty, a treaty that will supplement the Outer Space Treaty of 1967. I mean, imagine the world of 1967. That was before we went to the moon. That was when the space race was very primitive. So when the Outer Space Treaty of 1967 was signed, it said basically two things which actually held the peace for many decades. First, nuclear weapons should not be put into outer space. And second of all, no nation to declare a celestial body as its property. I think these are two very reasonable statements to make, but they're woefully obsolete. First of all, you don't have to be a nation state to put a flag on the moon. Elon Musk can do it. Private individuals can do it. Costs have dropped so much that even private billionaires like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos of Amazon have the capability of putting their flag on the moon. So we need more safeguards or else everybody's going to be planting flags on all these celestial bodies. And also, no one is saying that a war in space is going to be fought with nuclear weapons. No. Now we have lasers, particle beams, projectiles. In other words, we have more than one way to destroy the satellites of another country, blinding them in the opening seconds of a war. And so the point we're raising is, we need a new version of the Outer Space Treaty of 1967. The great powers have to sit down at the table and realize that it's in their common interest. Their common interest because, of course, it's our backyard. If a fist fight breaks, up in our, breaks out in our backyard, pretty soon everybody's going to jump in and it's going to be a real mess. 
especially with thousands of pieces of debris in outer space. So in other words, I think the time has come for a new outer space treaty to set the ground rules so that nations do not misinterpret the intentions of other nations and nations clearly understand how far they can go to perfect weapons that are going to be used in outer space. And speaking about outer space, NASA has recently declared that its next target will be Venus. It's sort of like rekindling an old love affair after 30 years. 30 years ago, NASA sent the Magellan spacecraft to map the surface of Venus for the first time, and then we lost interest for 30 years. Now we're going back. And the question is, why? Why did we drop the ball concerning Venus, which is actually our twin? Well, the reason is quite simple. Venus is our twin. It's almost identical to the Earth in size, but it's our evil twin. It is horribly divergent from the Earth in terms of temperature, atmospheric content. The surface temperature of Venus is 900 degrees Fahrenheit. That's hotter than a baker's oven. That's hotter than the melting point of lead and many metals. If you were to walk on the surface of Venus, you would sink, sink into a pool of molten metal. Second of all, when it rains, the rains do not cool down the surface. No, it rains sulfuric acid. That's right. Sulfuric acid is one of the main components of the rain on the planet Venus. Third, Atmospheric pressure is 100 times that found on the Earth. So if you were to walk on the surface of Venus as an astronaut, what would happen? First, you'd be burned alive because of the heat. Then acid. Acid would then char whatever remains of your body are left over. And the atmospheric pressure would crush, crush your bones into a pulp. In other words, you would be a bunch of powder after in undergoing the atmospheric uh, conditions on the planet Venus. So, is life possible on Venus? Well, a few years ago, some scientists thought that in the atmosphere, far from the surface, is cool. And as a consequence, maybe life can exist because phosphine, an organic chemical, was found in the clouds of Venus. Well, since then, that result has been challenged, so we don't know for sure whether or not organic chemicals can survive high above the surface of Venus, where it's a lot cooler. But the mystery is, why? Why did Venus become our evil twin? And the answer could be the greenhouse effect. You know, once upon a time, science fiction writers talked about Venus as a tropical environment. Our astronauts would vacation take vacation on Venus, and use Venus as a halfway station for exploration. Boy, were they wrong. What happened to Venus? Well, Carl Sagan had an idea, and that is because the atmosphere of Venus is almost pure carbon dioxide, coming from volcanoes and outgassing from rock, and because Venus is so close to the sun, closer than the Earth, then it was a runaway greenhouse effect. A runaway greenhouse effect. As temperatures begin to rise, if there were oceans on Venus, they would boil away, creating more greenhouse gases, which would trap sunlight. 
And with the atmosphere made out of carbon dioxide, it'd be very easy to trap sunlight and heat up the temperature of Venus. So that's a theory. However, it's a theory that we want to test. And that's one another reason for wanting to go to Venus, which is our closest planetary neighbor. By the way, you've seen Venus before. It is the evening star and the morning star. When children say starlight, star bright, first star I see tonight, that star, the evening star and the morning star, is not a star at all. It's the planet Venus. It is the brightest object in the night sky, second only to the moon. In fact, it is so bright that many people think it's a flying saucer. A lot of the flying saucer sightings are actually sightings of the planet Venus. Also, news on the medical front. Doctors have always said that people should exercise, have a diet low in sugar and fats and high in fruits and vegetables, and we actually have results that show this to be correct. Scientists have gone to the Amazon of Brazil. There's an isolated population of indigenous people, the Tsumane people, and they have two things going for them. First of all, a low rate of heart disease. That was announced a few years ago. That alone is reason enough to take a diet which is low in sugar and fats and high in vegetables and, um, so, and, and of course, exercise. But now a new result came in just last week. They also showed that signs of aging in the brain, the brain suffers 70% less loss of brain cells as you get older. This is new. So not only does this so-called caveman diet give you better health, perhaps affect your longevity because you don't die of heart disease so rapidly, it also means that your brain function your brain function retains its vitality a lot longer if you obey this, this caveman or cavewomen diet, or paleo diet as they call it. And another thing, from Harvard University, there was a study done on couch potatoes. That's right, couch potatoes, and they started to ask the question, why is it that in certain Western cultures, sperm count in males are dropping. Now, this is still a controversial result. Not everyone agrees with it. But if it's true that sperm count is decreasing in certain select populations, the question is why? Well, at Harvard University, they did a study. It's not totally definitive. But what they found was that there is a commonality to couch potatoes. And that is, A, they have a sedentary lifestyle, that is, they don't exercise much, and B, they have a low sperm count. So in other words, this is not the smoking gun, but it does point to the fact that having the lifestyle of a couch potato not only affects your muscle mass, your heart, and your brain, it also affects your love life, because eventually it means that you have a lower sperm count. Think about that. The next time you bite into that pizza, the next time you say to yourself, to hell with a diet, to hell with exercise. Well, I'm afraid that's it for the first part of exploration. 
In the second part of exploration, we're going to talk about one of the strangest developments in computer technology. What will eventually replace the digital computer which is so familiar to our lives? We can't live without computers, right? Well, some people think that the Silicon Age is going to be over in the coming years, and we're going to go to a new type of computer called the quantum computer. And that's going to be the subject of the second half of exploration. What will replace the silicon microchip, which is found everywhere in our environment? Will it be quantum computers? Will we be computing on individual atoms in the future? And what does that mean for you and me? Welcome. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is the second half of Exploration. In the second half of Exploration, we're going to talk about the future of computers. Everybody knows, even children know, that computers are everywhere and essential for our life. Our games, the internet, entertainment, Everything around us seems to have a microchip in it, but did you realize that eventually that microchip will become obsolete? It will go the way of the old TV set. Remember the old vacuum tube TV sets that we used to have? Well, they've been replaced by transistors. Transistors, in turn, were replaced by microchips where we can store millions of transistors on a tiny wafer, but one day they too will be replaced. And we'll go to something called quantum computers. Now, today, your microchip in your laptop or cell phone or whatever has a chip with a layer about 20 atoms across. However, it's only a matter of time before that layer gets so thin, it'll be five atoms across. At that point, you don't know where the electron is anymore, and you get leakage, leakage and heat loss. So eventually, we run out of space to put transistors, the age of silicon will come to a close, and microchips will melt because they'll generate so much power. So what's the next step beyond silicon molecules? The next step beyond molecules is, of course, atoms. And that takes us into the realm of quantum computers, where transistors are replaced by individual atoms. Now, of course, computing on atoms is extremely difficult. We can't even see atoms with the naked eye. How can you manipulate them? Well, that's the challenge. The challenge is to be able to manipulate individual atoms so that you can compute with them. Now, atoms are like spinning tops. Because they spin, they can spin in a magnetic field up or down. And that means that if you shine a light on a spinning atom, you can flip it. That means you've done a calculation. Up, down, up, down represents a code, a number. And by shining a laser on these atoms that are spinning, you can flip them 
thereby programming the computer to do a calculation. However, as you can imagine, making a computer calculation is extremely sensitive. The slightest little decoherence, as we call it, could ruin the whole calculation. Well, with us today to talk about the promise and the perils of quantum computers is Professor Seth Lloyd of MIT. He started out doing what I do, theoretical physics, but he realized that there were greener pastures out there, greener pastures when a new generation of computers replaces silicon. The age of silicon will eventually come to a close, meaning that a new era and computation opens up, and that's what we're going to talk about today with Professor Seth Lloyd of MIT. And now I'd like to introduce our special guest for today. We're very delighted to have with us Professor Seth Lloyd of MIT, author of a new controversial book called Programming the Universe. And the question is, is the universe a quantum computer? Now, let me explain. We all know that computers that energize modern society are based on silicon. And the silicon chip that you have in your Pentium crams literally millions upon millions of tiny transistors into something that's a little bit bigger than your thumbnail. And the question is, how far can you go until the tiniest transistor becomes the size of an atom? Well, that time is coming. Perhaps in 20, 30 years, we don't know precisely when, but we do know that someday transistors will be so tiny that atoms of silicon simply won't do will have to go to atomic computers, otherwise known as quantum computers, and Professor Lloyd is an expert in this area called quantum computation, and he thinks maybe even the universe is a quantum computer. Now, let me also note that atoms spin like a spinning top, and you all know that spinning tops have an arrow, the axis of spin, and that could point up or down. If it points up, that's a zero. If it points down, that's a 1, and you get binary. But atoms are more than just binary. Atoms can also point sideways and anywhere in between, a superposition of up and down. And that's where we get into the bizarre world of the quantum theory, where you don't really know quite where this arrow is pointing, but you have much more freedom than simply zeros and ones. You have zeros and ones and in between. These are called qubits, or quantum bits. And Dr. Seth Lloyd is one of the world's experts in this new area. And of course, many people are interested in this. Modern technocrats are interested because one day quantum computers may have the internet on it, and as well as banking records and your credit card records, not to mention the fact that the CIA wants to get their handle on quantum computers because with it, you can crack any code with a quantum computer. So once again, our special guest today is Dr. Seth Lloyd, author of the new book, Programming the Universe. Professor Lloyd, tell us a little bit about your youth. Uh, Were there any kinds of incidences or stories you'd like to tell about what set you off in a career in mathematics, computational physics, and physics? 
Well, I always loved fooling around with numbers and with games and things involving geometry when I was a kid. I played a lot with blocks and would build huge geometric constructions as well as buildings with them. Uh, and then when I went to school, um, I was amazed to find out that there was a subject called physics where with relatively simple math, you could discover a huge amount about the way the world works. Of course, then I went to graduate school and found it was really the opposite. There's a huge amount of complicated math, and you only understand a little tiny bit about the way the world works. But by then, it was too late. I was, I was uh, suckered into the field. And you also mentioned in your book that as a graduate student, everyone seemed to be doing string theory, but you saw your destiny going in a slightly different direction. Uh, could you elaborate? Sure. When I, um, uh, uh, when I was at Cambridge University, I did an uh, uh, M. on History and Philosophy of Science and started working on ideas of information and quantum mechanics. I also studied um, quantum gravity uh, with Stephen Hawking. And uh, I, it struck me that there was a connection between these uh, two things, these two ideas of quantum information and quantum gravity. Um, so uh, when I went to Rockefeller University, uh, to work with Heinz Pekels to um, do a PhD in physics, I uh, started off working on ideas of uh, quantum information and quantum gravity, basically the same thing that I'm doing today. Uh, unfortunately, they didn't like that very much at Rockefeller University, and about halfway through they told me I better cut it out and work on something more conventional like elementary particle physics or string theory. Well, I guess reality intrudes. Um, and uh, Heinz Pagels, I should also mention, was one of the early guests on exploration, uh, speaking about elementary particle physics. Uh, now let's talk about uh, things that are very practical. Uh, the average American, of course, says, what's in it for me? Numero uno. Am I going to get uh, better Internet reception? Uh, am I going to get uh, better uh, computer power? So let's talk about computer power, computer games, and what we have for Christmas. Everybody knows that at Christmas time, your computer is almost twice as powerful as the computers of the previous Christmas, and that's called Moore's Law. So some people say, well, Moore's Law is going to go on forever. However, you think otherwise. So tell us a little bit about Moore's Law and why you think Moore's Law is going to break down. So by Christmas time, we're not going to get Christmas presents that are almost twice as powerful as the previous Christmas. Well, uh, uh, it's dangerous to predict that Moore's Law will break down. People have been predicting its imminent demise for decades, starting in the uh, uh, late 1960s. And every time some clever engineer managed to find a way around whatever specific problem seemed to be standing in the way of progress. Um, and in fact, if you look at Moore's Law, it's not just one technology that has made computers uh, get more powerful by a factor of two every year and a half or so. Um, it's a whole series of technologies that have kicked in, from vacuum tubes to transistors to integrated circuits. And these technologies rely on uh, uh, the improvement, the rapid improvement of other kinds of methods like machining, material science, etc. So Moore's Law is kind of the, the tip of the iceberg of this rapid improvement. However, uh, it can't actually go on forever uh, for a simple reason, that is that computers are governed by the laws of physics. And the laws of physics tell you how small you can make things and how fast you can do things. And... Um, uh, so if you actually took all the energy in the universe and turned it 
into a gigantic computer, uh, a possibility in, envisaged by uh, Isaac Asimov in his story, The Last Question. Um, I was able to calculate using the physics of information processing how big such a computer would be. And, uh, well, uh, this computer, this universal computer, if you like, up till now it could have performed about 10 to the 120 op elementary operations or ops on about 10 to the 90 bits. And if you actually look at the exponential progress of Moore's Law and ask when, at what point, could the whole universe become a computer, it's only 250 or 400 years away. So even if we manage to take every elementary particle in the universe and turn it into, uh, uh, have it participate in a computation, then Moore's Law couldn't last for more than a, a few more centuries. Okay, well, let's be very practical. Uh, on your uh, desk is a laptop with a Pentium chip, let's say, and that Pentium chip has a layer, a layer of chemicals, uh, the smallest layer being 20 atoms across, 20 atoms across, the smallest layer in a Pentium chip on your desk. In 20 years, in fact, less than 20 years, that layer will be five atoms across at the rate at which we're going, five atoms across. And at five atoms, we have to introduce something called the Heisenberg Uncertainty Principle, which says you don't really know precisely where that electron is. In which case, if electrons leak out of the layer, your Pentium chip just short-circuited and your laptop is now useless. And so the question is, how small can you make a transistor before you bump up against atoms and at the atomic level, everything's uncertain? Yeah, well, that certainly is something to worry about. And indeed, if uh, Intel starts making chips where the electrons are just leaking out all over the place, the chips wouldn't work. So they clearly can't make them by exactly the same design. Um, however, it's certainly there's certainly nothing wrong with um, or nothing against the laws of physics to actually store bits of information at the atomic scale. Indeed, one atom, one bit. Um, and as uh, the components of computers get smaller, indeed, quantum effects like the Heisenberg uncertainty kick in. But um, maybe we can actually uh, uh, take advantage of these effects like the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. Maybe we can turn it from being a bug into a feature. And indeed, that's what my colleagues and I do when we try to build computers whose uh, feature scale, the size of the bits, are down at the level of individual atoms. Okay, now let's talk again very practical things when people say, what's in it for me? Well, the government, of course, would ask the same question, what's in it for us? And let's not talk about the CIA. The CIA, of course, is very much interested in breaking codes. Uh, they love to break the codes of other nations. But many times to break a code, you have to have a key. And sometimes this key is a, uh, the, the ability to factorize a huge number Let's say I have a number with 100 digits. Take a sheet of paper and write a random set of integers 100 digits long. would fill up many, many sheets of paper. And then you were asked to factorize it as the product of two numbers. Well, how would you do that? Uh, it would exhaust most computers. And some people, therefore, think that certain codes are safe, that it's beyond the ability of most ordinary computers to crack uh, the factorization of a number that is 100 digits long. But now, let's talk about computing on atoms. Is it possible that this new generation of computers, this quantum computers that you are pioneering, could be able to crack codes that even the CIA cannot crack? Well, it, it's possible. And indeed, uh, uh, if we could build a quantum computer, a computer that stored bits of information on individual atoms, 
one with only a few uh, uh, tens of thousands of quantum bits and one able to perform a few hundred million operations, which is to say something quite piddling compared with the laptop on my lap right now. Um, if we could build a very small quantum computer, then we could use these kind of weird features like the Heisenberg uncertainty principle to compute in a different way. And indeed, uh, uh, in 1994, uh, Peter Shore, uh, then at AT&T, now at MIT, showed that, in fact, you could exploit quantum weirdness to factor large numbers and break these codes with even a rather small quantum computer. Okay, now let's talk about uh, computers themselves. Everyone talks about the digital age. Everything is digital. But what does digital mean, and what is this zeros and ones, zeros and ones that sometimes we see in the press? And uh, like if you saw the movie The Matrix, you saw a bunch of zeros and ones, zeros and ones. What are these zeros and ones, and what is the so-called digital age? So, so uh, 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 a zero or one is what's called a bit. Uh, a bit is the the smallest possible chunk of information, and it doesn't have to be zero and one. The famous bits are yes or no heads or tails, true or false, uh, black or white, essentially any, um, any uh, thing that can take on two different states, two different distinguishable states registers a bit. And that's the smallest chunk of information. And the way that digital computers work is they break up information into bits, into its smallest chunks, and then process it that way. Okay, so if modern society, the wealth of nations, uh, everything we see around us, if it's governed by zeros and ones, then let's now talk about qubits, uh, quantum bits, where atoms don't have to be in zeros and one states. They could be zeros and ones and in between. So tell us about, about how atoms can be in between zero and one. Yeah, so, so well, as soon as one starts talking about quantum mechanics, then... Uh, things start to get weird. Uh, you know, Niels Bohr famously said that anyone who can contemplate quantum mechanics without getting dizzy hasn't properly understood it. Um, but uh, let's go on anyway. Back essentially a little more than 100 years ago, um, uh, physicists including Max Planck, Einstein, Niels Bohr, and others realized that there was an essential chunkiness to nature, a kind of a, a digital quality, that things that people thought of as being wave-like, like, for instance, light or sound, came in little chunks. Light came in little chunks called photons, a little particle of light. Sound came in little chunks called phonons, a little particle of sound. And so at this quantum level, things that look continuous actually are somewhat digital. For instance, you could have no photons in a spot or one photon in a spot. Or you could have one electron over here or one electron over there. And indeed, that's how a conventional computer registers bits, so with a lot more electrons. So, you know, bucket empty, lots of electrons out, electrons out of the bucket, that's zero. Bucket full, lots of electrons in the bucket, that's one. Now, in quantum mechanics, so quantum mechanics says the at bottom of the world has this digital feature, um, which is good because that means we can use this digital nature of the world, this quantum nature, to store digital information. But there's another weird feature of quantum mechanics, that goes under the name wave-particle duality. So just as waves like light are made up of particles, so things like particles, like electrons, for instance, have waves associated with them. The wave is uh, an electron's wave uh, tells you something about where the electron is. Now, so in a digital 
world, a, an ordinary bit, you could either have an electron here, that's zero, or there, that's one. But in the quantum world, the electron's wave can be both here and there at the same time. So a quantum bit, electron here and there at the same time, is a bit that can register in some funky quantum sense that nobody really understands, zero and one at the same time. Qubits are not either zero or one. They can be zero and one. Okay, so let's take an analogy of a top, a spinning top. Everyone's played with them as children, and atoms spin, and therefore atoms are also like spinning tops, and atoms can spin either up or down when they're placed in a magnetic field, or at least until the quantum theory came in. And so now we can have tops that spin up, tops that spin down, and tops that spin in between. Now, these qubits, these quantum bits, can be between 0 and 1, and they consist of atoms now, not molecules of silicon that you see on, on a transistor. So how would you actually now build a quantum computer? Let's say that you were an inventor, have access to laser beams and magnetic fields and the ability to play with atoms, individual atoms. How would you build a quantum computer? So um, uh, uh, I guess, in fact, uh, a little more than 10 years ago, I was in that position because um, quantum computers, the idea you could compute at the level of atoms using quantum mechanics, had been proposed by Paul Benioff and Richard Feynman back in the 1980s. But uh, uh, until by the early 1990s, nobody knew how to build one. Nobody had a clue. And uh, around 1992, 1993, I realized that with off-the-shelf elements like lasers and microwave generators, you could take atoms and make them compute. And the way the uh, type of computing I suggested was, in fact, just what you suggested. We'll take spin as our bit. So spinning up, or we can call that uh, clockwise, is uh, a zero. And spinning down is a one. And then spinning sideways is this funky state of a qubit, zero and one at the same time. So now, uh, uh, if you take such an atom, uh, the spin of the nucleus of an atom, you put the atom in a magnetic field, and then you zap it with microwaves. You can make that bit flip. This is called uh, uh, magnetic resonance. Um, it's the same technique that you uh, use to image your knee when you blow it out while skiing. Um, so if you put on light or microwaves at just the right frequency, it will tickle the nucleus and cause the nucleus to flip. First, it will start at, let's say, it starts at the state zero or spin up. And then it gradually rotates down through the state spin wah sideways, zero and one at the same time, to the state spin down, or one. Now, if you have lots of atoms, lots of nuclei, you can address them with different frequencies. You can think, in fact, of these different atoms as essentially listening to different radio stations. So, you know, if I have one atom that listens to um, uh, 89.7 megahertz, WGBH here in Boston, then uh, a second one, say the first one is carbon, say the second one is hydrogen, will listen to WCRB, 102.5. Uh, so, um, and when I address these two atoms with microwaves of different frequencies, or radio waves of different frequencies, then if I shine light at 89.7, the carbon atom, which listens to 89.7, will flip. And if I shine light or microwaves at 102.5, then the hydrogen atom, which listens to WCRB, will flip. So I can address atoms individually. And then if you're sensitive to the interaction between the atoms, 
you can massage those interactions to make up uh, uh, logical operations. For instance, causing the hydrogen atom to flip if and only if the carbon atom is spin down or one. And since at bottom, a computation is nothing more than making atoms, sorry, making bits flip and making one bit flip if another bit or another or several other bits say read one, then any computation can be broken down into these simple operations, making bits flip, making them interact with each other. And the atoms in our molecule, the carbon and the hydrogen, can perform a simple computation simply by addressing them with light. Okay, so let's back up a bit. You have a bunch of atoms, let's say in a line, and you place it in a magnetic field, so the spins are either up or down, or perhaps sideways, a mixture of up and down. And once you have these atoms aligned, then you hit it with uh, microwaves. And at certain frequencies, uh, the atom will absorb the radiation and flip. That's right. And each flipping process represents a calculation. Now, because the atom is neither up nor down, but it's a mixture of up and down, you have much more flexibility than in zeros and ones, okay? Now, then the question is, what kind of computation can you perform on this? Can you do the calculations of a laptop? Can you do one plus one is two? What's the world's record for computing on these atoms? So you can certainly take uh, uh, these atoms and make them do anything uh, that an ordinary digital computer could do. So at the moment, um, because atoms are very small, uh, and even if you extrapolate Moore's law into the future, depending on how you um, you uh, uh, calculate size, um, then you it will take 25 to 40 years to for us to get computers where the components are atomic, even if Moore's law continues at its current breakneck pace. But the quantum computers we've built can do anything that a quantum computer, that an ordinary computer, say, with 7 to 10 bits can do, because that's the size of the computers we're looking at right now. However, um, so as, as viewed as classical computers, just doing ordinary operations like 1 plus 1 equals 2, then they're, they're pretty weak, these quantum computers. Not only are they small in actual size, you know, the size of uh, a few uh, of a small molecule, but they're um, small in terms of power. However, if we start to take advantage of the, abil the ability of atoms to read 0 and 1 at the same time, then quantum computers can do things that classical computers can't. And, and the, the secret comes from looking at what bits can do in a computer. So bits can store data, uh, uh, but they also can be instructions. So 0 can mean do this, right? And 1 is an instruction meaning do that. Now, if I take a quantum bit, qubit that reads 0 and 1 at the same time, and I feed it into a quantum computer as an instruction, then the quantum computer will do this, and it will do that at the same time. So quantum computers can multitask or do parallel computation in a way that classical computers can't. And that's why if we could build a quantum computer, say, with a few tens of thousands of, of quantum bits, which seems uh, which is, you know, difficult, but certainly not impossible, then uh, we might be able to start striking fear into the hearts of the CIA, the NSA, and other three-letter agencies. Now, the reality, and correct me if I'm wrong, 
the reality is that the world's record for a quantum computation is, da-da, drumbeat, 3 times 5 equals 15. And I understand that that calculation was done on something like 5 to 7 atoms. So correct me if I'm wrong, but at the present time, uh, we're still at doing calculations that even children can do. Tiny steps for tiny bits, Mitchell. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you've got to start from somewhere. And, uh, and indeed, um, as you pointed out, uh, the whole notion that quantum effects might come into play strikes fear to the heart of Intel. So we have to figure out how to make atoms compute. And before we start to make uh, Avogadro's number of atoms compute. So, um, uh, you know, starting about uh, six or seven years ago, we started to do the first quantum computations, and we've been gradually making them bigger. Um, it, it takes a, a, a tough engineer to handle a tender atom. Uh, uh, atoms are small and sensitive. Well, I'm afraid that's it for exploration. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku, our special guest today with Professor Seth Lloyd of MIT, speaking about quantum computers. And go to my website if you want to know more about my radio show and my work. My website is mkaku.org, M-K-A-K-U.org, and find out about my latest book, which is a New York Times bestseller, The book is called The God Equation, The Quest for a Theory of Everything. In other words, the quest to find the holy grail of science, to find that one equation that explains the entire universe. Find out in my book, The God Equation. Good day.